what works and what doesn't. Understanding what works. What works for me. Understanding your own business to know what works. What works for you. This is What Works. Toward the end of 2022, I noticed a LinkedIn post from storyteller Hillary Ray. Hillary announced that she decided to delete her LinkedIn profile at the end of the year, just as she'd done on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at the end of 2020. At this point, people announcing that they were leaving social media for good or even just taking an extended break is nothing new. But what stood out to me about Hillary's post was that she said quitting Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook over two years ago was one of the best business decisions she ever made. This I needed to hear more about. I'm Tara McMullen, and this is What Works, the show that explores how to navigate the 21st century economy without losing your humanity. I knew I needed to hear more about Hillary's decision to quit social media, not only because I knew many of you would be mulling over similar decisions as we kick off the new year, but also because I suspected that Hillary's choice was a perfect example of opportunity cost. This week, I'm kicking off a series I'm calling simply The Economics Of... We'll take a closer look at economic concepts and how they can help us navigate the 21st century economy. Today, we're digging into opportunity cost. Over the course of this series, we'll look at the economics of information, attention, delegation, pricing, and more. We'll consider what we assume is valuable and what kinds of value we discount and we'll get curious about the role that the market plays in our lives and work. Yeah, we're gonna get nerdy, but not in the way you might think. And that's because economics is a field of study that most people have a lot of misconceptions about. So what is economics? Economics isn't a field of math, finance, or even business. Economics is a social science, just like sociology, anthropology, or psychology. Social sciences aim to understand how societies work. And so economics is the social science that studies how resources are allocated, whether at the micro level or at the macro level. Now, if someone told you to economize or to be economical, what would you do? you'd probably take that instruction to mean that you should be judicious with the resources you have. You might want all sorts of things, but you'll need to choose the particular wants you'll satisfy based on the limited resources you have. Now, we do these sorts of calculations every single day. We economize at the grocery store. We economize when we consider what subscriptions we'll buy for our businesses. We even economize on vacation, acknowledging that we don't have the budget for an all-out Bacchanalian bash, so we're going to have to choose what we spend our money and time on. In this way, economics has a lot to teach us about decision-making. 
Should I spend my time on this project or that project? Should I charge more or less? Is this a good investment or a bad investment? Should I quit now or keep going? Now, economic frameworks probably won't tell us which decision to make, but they will often reveal unexpected ways to see the situation and make our choices clearer. One way I think about economics is that it's sort of the art of laying everything out on the table so we can make more informed decisions. And often, when we lay everything out, the financial or quantifiable considerations are only a tiny piece of the puzzle. Now, today we're going to examine opportunity cost as a framework for decision making, and we'll use Hillary's story as a case study. Whether or not quitting social media is a decision you're wrestling with right now, my guess is that there is a choice, big or small, that you'd like a different way to look at. By the end of this episode, you should have a new perspective, and maybe, just maybe, you'll have even made a decision. Now, one ubiquitous definition of economics comes from Lionel Robbins, and he said economics is the science which studies behavior as a relationship between unlimited wants and limited resources which have alternative uses. Now, this definition of economics is most often interpreted as pitting the needs of a massive population with limited resources that can't fully sustain it. It's used as an explanation for poverty and wealth inequality. However, as economic historian Robert Skidelsky explains in a lecture for the Institute for New Economic Thinking, this interpretation leaves out some pretty important stuff. Economists will tell you that unlimited desires is what drive the economic action. But they've actually spent very little time um, explaining why these desires are unlimited. Instead, they do what so often economists do, which is start with an assumption and work out the consequences. Because needs are biological, wants are social. So the idea that wants are limitless by nature is nonsense. We want something not because we need it, but because someone else has it. Today, competitive consumption is promoted by advertisers and politicians as the democratic form of happiness. Skidelsky argues that we can't equate the unlimited desires inspired by consumer advertising in the 20th and 21st centuries with the real physical needs that every human has for living at some level of comfort. He also argues that the resources we have access to are limited by institutional and historical constraints rather than the natural state of things. So once you escape from the basic biology, again, you soon discover that scarcity, like desire, is socially constructed. Neoclassical economists have tried to figure out how to direct limited resources toward unlimited desires in the most efficient way possible, specifically through the system of competitive capitalism. This often means making the fewest interventions possible and letting the free market work it out. But Skidelsky argues that this ignores how desire and scarcity are socially constructed 
what we desire beyond our biological needs and how resources are scarce despite having enough to go around are the result of human choices, not nature. And that means that by thinking critically about how we distribute resources and create desire, we could allocate resources much more fairly as a society. And we could better understand the choices we have within their socially constructed milieu. Now, we're going to come back to this when we dive into today's case study. But first, let's take a look at opportunity cost, a basic framework of economics. Opportunity cost is a decision-making framework. The concept helps us think through our choices by inviting us to consider the value of the alternatives. Economist John Quiggin puts it this way, quote, the opportunity cost of anything of value is what you must give up to get it. The opportunity cost of anything of value is what you must give up to get it. Now, to be clear, cost and value don't have to be financial. Time, enjoyment, or learning, among other forms of value, can also be considered. Sounds simple enough, right? But opportunity cost asks us to see value in alternatives that we might easily dismiss. So let's take a very hypothetical example here. Let's say I'd really like to get a PhD in, say, media studies or feminist philosophy. On the one hand, going to grad school for a PhD has all sorts of value, rigorous learning, academic guidance, scholarly networking, access to institutional resources, and more. Attaining the PhD has additional value, such as the potential for getting a teaching job or to pursue different avenues of writing and media production. It also comes with a cost, and maybe not the cost you'd assume. Because I'd only consider fully funded programs, so tuition wouldn't be a direct expense. But there would likely be relocation costs, as well as the cost of not working at full capacity for four to six years. Conservatively, pursuing a PhD would likely cost me $170,000 to $200,000 in unearned income. Not to mention the hit my retirement savings and Social Security earnings would take. Pursuing a PhD might also cost me my regular podcast and newsletter schedule, diminishing my relevance to a well-established audience. The concept of opportunity cost then asks us to consider the next best alternative. In this case, my next best alternative to pursuing a PhD is to continue doing the work I'm doing now. I get many of the same benefits. I'm constantly learning. I get to teach whenever I want to. And I get to write and produce media. I don't have the guidance of a department or advisor, nor do I have access to some of the forums I'd like to create in. But I do have ways of approximating those opportunities. And as long as I continue to monitor my mental health, continuing with my current work doesn't cost me anything financially. It's unlikely that any path I pursued with a PhD would net a greater income over the next 25 years than the likely income I'll earn from my current work. So now that I've laid everything out, thanks to the idea of opportunity cost, I have to consider my two choices. 
do I pursue a PhD because it has personal and professional value to me, even though it comes at a great financial cost? Or do I stick with the work I'm currently doing and forgo the experience I crave? Here's the thing, I still don't know. (laughs) And that's kind of my point here. Opportunity cost allows us to look at our choices, but it doesn't always clarify what we should do. Ultimately, the decision is gonna be based on my values, commitments, and vision. The point of thinking through opportunity cost when weighing choices isn't to reveal the right answer. It's to reveal the full context of the decision so that you're not missing information that might sway your choice. And that brings us to our opportunity cost case study. To quit social media or not to quit social media, that is the question. I can't tell you how many times over the last few years I've heard business owners and independent workers say, I'd quit social media tomorrow if I didn't need to be there. My question is always, well, why do you have to be there? What benefit are you getting from it? And hey, some folks have great answers. They use it as a sort of lab for testing ideas, or they run a business in which scale matters, and they've found that social media is the best place for them to attract customers. Or maybe they operate in an industry that relies on social media as proof of concept and credibility. In those cases, we can look at the opportunity cost of being on social media versus getting those needs met in other ways. But most often, the answers to my questions are about the potential for benefits. They might say, I'm building my audience to attract customers, or I'm building a personal brand so that clients know they can trust me, or if I get 10,000 followers, I can launch an online course. And sure, there is potential benefit to be received via social media. There's also the potential to, say, win the lottery. And while I'll admit that the odds of making it big on social media are slightly better than winning the lottery, potential benefits must be weighed against real costs, of which there are many when it comes to social media. To return to the ideas posed by Robert Skidelsky, The desire or need to be on social media is a social construct, and the need to be on social media is a social construction that creates a scarcity of our time and attention. No business needs to be on social media to succeed. No career is dependent on social media for advancement. Unless, perhaps, you're a social media influencer. That's disappointing. That need is a perception invented by marketers. What is up, everyone? Welcome back to my channel, the best place to learn how to get visible using social media and get paid using business strategy. Now, in today's video, I want to share with you guys how you can make your first $1,000 using social media. Without recognizing that, we can't recognize that the time we spend on social media is a resource that we could distribute in a number of other ways to fill our truer needs and desires. That's exactly what Tell Me A Story founder Hilary Ray recognized and took action on. And we'll get to that. But first, I wanted to know what her experience of social media was like before she made the decision to sign off for good. 
I definitely started having an uncomfortable relationship with social media and specifically those three platforms in 2020 because of everything going on in in the world that year, Mm -hmm. but also my anxiety just around being like isolated at home, everything. That's Hillary. In addition to being the founder of Tell Me a Story, she's also the host of Rashomon, a podcast about the many sides of every story. Towards the end of college, in my 20s, even into my early 30s, I'm 40 now, two parts of my personality that I was always kind of fighting against and also worked really hard to get rid of were comparing myself to other Mm. people and also judgment. Like creating false narratives around other people, like that's sort of Mm -hmm. what the judgment kind of manifested as. And then also like creating false narratives around myself in terms of comparing myself to other people. And I had worked really hard on like moving through that, moving past it, like being in this space where I could like fully trust myself personally and professionally and like be open to everybody and all things in life. Like you know, working towards that. And I noticed in like mid 2020 that those comparison-y feelings and judgment-y feelings were coming back to the surface, both in business stuff and personal. For Hillary, one of the major costs of social media was her mental state. And I know that's going to be familiar to lots of people listening. All my anxious overachievers out there know what it's like to exist in that nasty soup of judgment and comparison. Social media platforms felt especially fraught in the summer of 2020, and for good reason. We were reckoning with a 9-11 number of deaths from COVID every day, an administration that seemed hell-bent on spreading misinformation, and our own feelings about being locked down in our homes. We were also reckoning with the violent deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmed Arbery as well as the long legacy of police brutality and white supremacy. It was a lot to process. Add financial insecurity into that mix, and you've got a recipe for spiraling into a very dark place. So I made a decision in July of 2020 just to not engage personally or professionally. So I didn't post anything like from my life on my personal account. Mm -hmm. I didn't post anything for Tell Me a Story until I think I made an announcement that I was like stepping back. And in Facebook, I even was a part of a lot of Facebook groups. And that's actually one of the things I really loved about that platform specifically. Mm -hmm. And I even like stopped checking those groups and participating in those groups. And somewhere between like July and like somewhere in Q3, Q4, I said, you know what, let's have a ceremonial December 31st, 2020 um, deleting. And so I did. I I don't remember. I didn't like light a candle or play music or do anything like that. (laughs) But I did. I did sit down and delete everything. By everything, Hillary means multiple Twitter and Instagram accounts, as well as her Facebook profile, business page, and membership in groups. A lot of new business owners get started on social media thinking, I have to be here. This is just what you do, or this is how you build a business. But there isn't a concrete or specific idea of what you're actually trying to get out of it. What did you think you were trying to do? 
I don't think I had a strategy. I mean, I know I hired someone to give me a strategy, mm-hmm. and I, it was about growing the audience, but in service of what, I'm not sure. I asked Hillary if she was worried about what she was giving up by quitting social media. So much of what I thought I was giving up or what I was worried about losing, I guess, mm-hmm. was my all the personal stuff like my personal profiles and personal connection to friends to even like family members of mine that I like wouldn't like I have family in New Zealand and France and like even on other parts of this country um people that I had lived in Japan with um and also and like people that I had maybe met via like a professional relationship, but we had like maintained like a personal relationship as well. I was worried that I would lose touch with all of those people and that also no one would like think of me anymore. Not that Mm -hmm. I thought people were like, I'm thinking about Hillary Ray all day, every day, but just that I like that I know for like my social circle was the way people like stayed in touch and assumed everything was going well or if it wasn't going well. But she just wasn't worried about losing the business benefits of social media because she wasn't seeing any. This is where it's funny because I like can look at the data and it's I'm such a storyteller narrative person, but the data really informed me making this declaration. I do know other factors are involved beyond just leaving these platforms, but I have had the best two years of business running Tell Me a Story since it started at the end of 2016. Like 2017 was the first full year. So 2021 and 2022. Okay. So we know the costs of being on social media, an unpleasant or even harmful mental state, the time it takes to post and manage your account, and the expense of hiring someone to tell you what to do on there. And we know that there's the potential for a benefit work-wise, depending on the kind of work you do, who your clients are, and what industry you're in. So what's the alternative? What has Hillary been doing with her social media time over the last two years? And has it been worth it? I know what I need to do to market my services and create, like, build more brand awareness or, like, build audience. And I know what works. And I also, it's all an extension of who I am, an extension of tell me a story. So it's like, all story-based. It's all modeling different styles of professional communication, which is what I help people with. And it's fun and creative for me. I don't know, just even that alone. Like, would I have had the best two years revenue-wise with social media? Maybe. But I don't know if I would have simplified my marketing and like created a marketing plan and strategy that feels so aligned and also doesn't feel like a plan or a strategy because it's like, oh, yeah, of course, this is what I do and what I need to do. And here's how I can shift it to free up more time for myself and also to have more fun in this process with like finding the right people and having the right people find me. Okay, um, well, that sounds good. So let's break this down. What exactly is Hillary doing to market her business? First, she offers free events called the Speak Up Sessions. That event 
shifted over time. I experimented a lot with format, but it was always an hour in length. It would often feature one of my clients working on one of their stories so that they had opportunity to share it in front of an audience, but that also we could have a bit of a behind the scenes conversation for the group of like why they're working on it, where are they still struggling, how are they going to use it, et cetera. And then we would do like a Q&A and some of the sessions were more workshoppy. Next, she prioritizes booking her own speaking engagements, including podcast interviews. Many of them come after hearing me on someone else's podcast, like yours, for example. I do a lot of introductory workshops on an exercise that I have called the Five Word Life Story. So I've partnered with different organizations of varying sizes to offer these workshops and their organizations where I know my audience is, is there. Hillary also puts time and intention into reaching out to groups and companies she wants to partner with. I'm actually spending my marketing time reaching out to seek out the opportunities that I want and like create those opportunities and to do really intentional relationship-based networking. I have been utilizing Michelle Warner's program called Networking That Pays since 2020. So that like I was very like systematic about it, like every week, like she has this really brilliant system of like different kinds of outreach that you do different days of the week. And that should only take five minutes once you have the system in place. And also a lot of time on like, who is it that you're reaching out to and why? But I got to a point with the system where it just was working. Like I didn't have to like sit down and be like, am I writing Mm -hmm. a thank you note today? Or who am I connecting somebody to, which are things that she recommends. It just became a natural extension of my outreach and I guess like my initial kind of marketing strategy. And now so much of it is default that I'm really focusing on like building big relationships. So like relationships that maybe feel out of reach at the moment and most of the time, and I've just had really great success with this throughout my career, is that I do a lot of cold outreach to really great success. I know that activities like pitching podcast hosts, doing cold outreach to potential partners, and offering high value free events are on a lot of people's wouldn't it be nice if lists. I hear about it from our podcast clients on a regular basis they never seem to have the time to do it. When we don't consider the opportunity cost of social media, we don't recognize what we're giving up. We don't see that social media time is the time we could be spending on these other tactics that often have a much higher value. It seems like the potential benefits of social media are bigger and more likely to happen. After all, social media is where the hype is, at least on social media. Those other activities don't seem as glamorous because so few people are hyping their outcomes. But I said it on the TEDx stage and I'll say it again, the most successful people I know aren't big names on social media. They don't have massive audiences and they might not even have accounts. Instead, they spend their time on marketing and networking activities that dependably deliver massive results. Things like podcast interviews, speaking engagements, and intentional outreach. They recognize that they could spend time on social media promoting themselves or their work, 
but they also recognize that the potential benefit of social media is outweighed by the cost of giving up the time they spend on a strategy that's already proved successful. Not to mention a less anxious, judgmental, or obsessive mental state. That's opportunity cost in action. Now remember, the opportunity cost of one choice is whatever you give up to get it. When you give your time to social media, you're giving up time that could be spent on other marketing activities, things that could be easily tied to more leads and more revenue. When you give your time to other marketing activities, you give up the potential to become internet famous, but you also give up all the potential harm that's caused by worrying about those platforms. Now, just to be clear, I am not making the argument to quit social media. As of this recording, I still use Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Although working on this episode has certainly given me pause. But then again, my business has operated at scale for a long time. I'd like to write and publish more books. Social media has been a tool that's benefited me greatly and continues to do so. That said, I've dramatically changed my approach over the last few years, and I'm always paying attention to whether I'm still getting benefits from the time I spend on social media, or whether that time would yield better results spent on something else. So what are the economics of a decision that you're considering? Maybe, like Hillary, you're contemplating completely pulling the plug on social media. Maybe you're thinking about whether you wanna hire an employee to help you grow your business. Maybe it's a career change that's on your mind. Or, you know, smaller things, too. This week, I challenge you to consider the opportunity costs associated with this decision. If you make X choice, what are you giving up? And what are you getting? And if you make Y choice, what are you giving up? And what are you getting? And to go further, consider the socially constructed desires and resulting scarcities at play with both choices. Why do you want one option over the other? What seems scarce but could simply be redistributed? Keep in mind that what you're giving up is rarely cut and dry. It's rarely obvious. You might need to sit with your choices for quite some time to fully understand your options. But when you do, you can be confident about the decision you make because you'll have truly weighed your choice. Next week, I'm going to tackle the economics of information. Maybe you've heard the phrase, information wants to be free, and wondered how it is that selling information then has become such a big business online. Well, if you haven't, I have. And I wanted to examine what is valuable about information, how that value is instantiated or not as property, and propose a different way to think about the value of so-called information products, courtesy of feminist economics. Huge thanks to Hilary Ray from Tell Me a Story for sharing her case study. Find out more about her great work at tellmeastory.info or listen to her podcast, Rashomon, wherever you listen to What Works. What Works is a production of Yellow House Media, a boutique production agency for podcasters who are changing our assumptions about culture, 
leadership, and business. Today's episode was written and edited by me, Tara McMullen. Our production coordinator is Lou Blazer. Our production assistant is Emily Kilduff. Marty Seafelt is our audio engineer. Sean McMullen is our executive producer. Today's music is from Track Club. What Works is recorded on the ancestral homeland of the Susquehannock people. The Yellow House is located on the unceded land of the Kutunaha Nation. Mm-hmm.